The importance of treating stroke cannot be overestimated. It's clearly one of the most important health conditions in the country, and as physicians, we need to attack it and attack it aggressively. Joining me today on Primary Care Today is Dr. Donald Fry. He is the Director of Neurointerventional Surgery at Radiology Imaging Services in Denver, Colorado. He's here to talk about stroke, the various issues surrounding it, and what we can do about it. First of all, Dr. Fry, welcome, and thank you for joining us about such a serious topic. Well, thank you for having me. My first question for you to start off is really if you look at how important stroke is for the overall health of the general public and what an issue it is, you can describe it personal experience as many of us can, but clearly you deal with it every day. Just how severe of a problem is it and how important is it to detect it early on? Well, I think it affects a a lot of people. In the U.S., it affects more than 700,000 people per year, and that number keeps going up. It's the number one cause of adult disability. It's a major financial drain on our health care services, and it's the fourth leading cause of death. And it's often preventable by controlling risk factors such as smoking, hypertension, high cholesterol, and diabetes. So it's one of these things that affects a lot of people in the U.S. It's becoming more and more prevalent, and I think it's something that we, uh, we, can, we can prevent. And, and if we can't prevent it and someone presents with a stroke, we can treat it. Naturally, we have all sorts of people listening to the program in different areas of health care, but for primary care providers, the primary focus of this program, early on, what are the things we should be doing to try and reduce the incidence of stroke in our patients uh, from, from those early stages? Well, as I said before, I think the best treatment is prevention. The best way to treat a stroke is to never have one. And the risk factors are related to atherosclerotic disease. So as I mentioned, stop smoking, control blood pressure and diabetes and cholesterol and and be more healthy, and that way you can hopefully never have this problem at all. Uh, but if you do, we do have ways of treating it. Um, intravenous TPA can be used up to four and a half hours after the onset of symptoms, and what this uh, recent study has shown is that inside the artery treatment can be treated, can help patients uh, further out up to six hours, and often when they're uh, they have contraindications to IV clot-busting medication. Let's talk about that in a little more in detail. Someone comes into the emergency room suffering the symptoms of a stroke. When do you go to the present clot-busting methods and those additional tools? What are your reasons for doing it and also reasons for avoiding it? So when, one of the key issues with stroke therapy and treatment is really having a, a protocol and plan in place for rapid time management. So in our hospital, the patients go through the ER and don't stop, go directly to the CAT scanner. And the first uh, key uh, ingredient is in patient selection is doing a CAT scan non-contrast to look for hemorrhage to make sure it's an ischemic stroke where an artery is blocked as opposed to a, a stroke where a hemorrhage has occurred in the brain. And if that non-contrast CAT scan is normal and they're within four and a half hours, then they can be given intravenous DPA. But the the largest strokes uh, related to large vessel occlusion, uh, often intravenous therapy is not enough, and that's where we can select patients with CTA, which is an IV contrast CAT scan looking at the arteries in the brain. If, and if there is a large vessel occlusion, those patients are appropriate for inside the artery treatment. But you really have to go quickly from uh, what we call door to imaging and imaging to treatment, door to needle and door to and to vascular access. How many facilities do we have, I mean, percentage-wise in the country? Are most ERs equipped to do this? Are a few equipped to do it? What, what's your sense? I think there are several hundred that are equipped. Uh, they're called primary stroke centers, so they're equipped to give intravenous TPA, the IV clot-busting medicine. There are probably less than 100 right now that are, quote-unquote, comprehensive stroke centers. In Colorado, there are three. 
in the whole state of Colorado with more than 5 million people. So I think uh, it's very similar to the, the trauma status where you have level 1, 2, and 3 trauma centers. So I would equate a comprehensive stroke center to a level 1 trauma center. So if someone's got a large vessel occlusion, which is a major stroke, they're the most deadly, they should be quickly transported to a comprehensive stroke center that can do inter and in, in, inside the artery or neuroendovascular therapy. So assuming you have this and, and you're able to use it, um, what are the things that would make someone not a candidate, not able to have this? Well, I think the biggest issue is time. So if a patient comes to the hospital and it's been many hours since their symptoms started and they come in and we image them and there's a large uh, what we call uh, core infarction, so a lot of the brain is already uh, kind of to the point of no return, then that would be the biggest contraindication. I'm with Dr. Donald Fry. I'm Dr. Brian McDonough, host of Primary Care Today on ReachMD. We're talking about stroke and treatments for stroke. And if we go back to the beginning where you talk about the importance of time, how have the efforts to educate the general public about getting into the emergency room on time been? Have we seen any improvements in statistics for people getting to the ED? I think there are improvements, and the American Heart Association, the American Stroke Association, has worked on that, but I think we still have a, lo- a long way to go. I mean, I think there are a lot of patients that just don't get to the hospital quickly enough. Uh, stroke doesn't hurt, so it's not like they get a headache. They just stop moving one side or the other or stop talking. So I think there's an opportunity to continue to educate the public, and I think um, what some of these, tr- this, these trials have shown recently is that inside the artery, therapy really works well for large vessel occlusion, but it works best in people that you can start the treatment faster. So I think there's still an opportunity to work with EMS and the pre-hospital and work with the community as a whole. What do you think about physicians in general? Are we aware, uh, those of us not dealing with it obviously on the front lines, are we aware of the various treatment modalities out there and the importance of maybe educating high-risk patients about where they're available? Well, I think there's still an opportunity for improvement there. I think that uh, again, most hospitals in the U.S. or many hospitals are pretty well equipped for inside uh, IV TPA or the intravenous therapy. But I don't know if um, all the physicians out there know what a neurointerventional surgeon does, which is basically treating uh, uh, vascular problems in the brain, head, neck, and spine from the inside, and know that these inside-the-artery uh, treatments are available. So I think this trial that was recently published in the New England Journal, the Mr. Clean trial, really, shows that um, in this prospective randomized study in the Netherlands, inside the artery therapy is better than standard of care, which is either um, you know, best medical therapy or IV TPA. So I think this is, I think, firm evidence for the entire medical community that inside the artery or neurointerventional treatment works in stroke patients who have the most deadly strokes, which are the large artery occlusions. If you're just tuning in, you are listening to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Brian McDonough, your host. I am speaking with Dr. Donald Fry. Dr. Fry is the Director of Neurointerventional Surgery. He's at Radiology Imaging Services in Denver, Colorado. He's joining us. We're talking about stroke and some of the newer ways of approaching it and things we, we need to know about that. And when you talk about your own training to become someone who is a specialist, a neurointerventional surgeon, what exactly do you have to do as far as training? It would sound to me like there's there's quite a bit of quite a bit of years of the OR and training before you get to that point. So you you can access this type of uh, expertise either from neurology, neurosurgery, or neuroradiology, and then you need at least an additional year of, uh, of neuroimaging training, and then two more years of neurointerventional training. So it's uh, seven plus years of training usually to, to be qualified to do this. And there are about 
probably seven or eight hundred physicians in the U.S. that are uh, certified neurointerventional surgeons. Is it a field that is growing? Because it would seem with the technology there there may be a greater need as well. It is growing, and I think uh, this is a it's a young field, so we're seeing technological advances uh, every day, both in the treatment of ischemic stroke that we're talking about today, as well as hemorrhagic strokes such as brain aneurysms and uh, stenting narrowed arteries in the neck and in the brain. So I think there's a, a lot of interesting and, and, and very effective technologies that are, are being developed every day. If you had a chance to educate with physicians, which you do by virtue of this program, and you're, you're getting a chance to talk to a lot of physicians, what would you want them to know about stroke and, from the standpoint of helping their patients you know, assume something has happened, they get a call, there's a problem, they're sending them to the ED, that sort of a thing. What, what should physicians be aware of, uh, warning signs, things to determine, steps to take? Right, so, so the, the most common symptoms uh, for stroke are sudden onset of being unable to speak or unilateral face, arm, or leg numbness or weakness. Those are the, the classic symptoms of a large artery stroke. And I think the key is to, to make sure that all the physicians know where the nearest comprehensive stroke center is, where their patients can get that type of inside-the-artery therapy that's so effective. And there are many hospitals, I think, also that are like stroke-certified hospitals, or they're actually more and more being recognized for, probably not to this level of detail, but trying to do things to be better equipped to recognize and handle it, I'm sure. Right. Yeah, I think there, there are many pr- primary stroke centers, and, and that's, they, they have the ability to in- administer intravenous TPA. But I think one of the keys is that there's never going to be as many uh, highest-level comprehensive stroke centers. So there has to be very good coordination and transfer agreements and being able to get the patients quickly to the center that can do the inside-the-artery therapy for the large vessel occlusions. Now, you're a member of the CNI Stroke Center. Tell me a little bit about that. Apparently, a lot of research and work being done to try to, to I guess, expand what's being done. Right. So that's our local uh, research center, and we are involved in a lot of uh, stroke trials, which I think is extremely important, as well as our Society of Neurointerventional Surgery, SNIS, which, which uh, helps kind of get all the physicians together to work on these prospective randomized trials to kind of advance our field and and make uh, treatment better for our patients. Now, did you think when you were getting into the field of radiology this was going to be something, a direction you would go? I mean, it it might not have been that well-developed at that time. I've been doing this for about 20-plus years, and I think it was very much in its infancy at the beginning, but it's it's a very interesting and challenging and and fast-moving subspecialty, so I'm certainly happy that I am where I am. Now, as far as the FDA uh, approval of things, um, are, are there more exciting things down the road from your perspective? Because clearly, you're on the cutting edge of this. Right. I think I think the FDA is uh, is very much uh, involved in this because we have a lot of endovascular devices that have to be approved by the FDA. So I think these types of uh, prospective randomized studies that show that our neuroendovascular techniques are beneficial for patients will only, um, you know, help get this out to, and available to more patients. So I think we have to certainly work closely with the FDA, and we do. And we have to work closely uh, with the NIH and other government agencies to, to get these things uh, through trials and get the, show the efficacy and, and, and get them approved for patient treatment. Doing the minimally invasive work, is there opportunity to work on things such as like arteriovenous malformations, things like that? Absolutely. That's one of the things we do. Both in the head and neck and brain and spine, we treat arteriovenous malformations, which are abnormal connections between the arteries and the veins. And they often cause, in the brain, hemorrhagic strokes. So they, those patients present 
with neurologic deficits secondary to an intracranial hemorrhage. Another common cause of hemorrhagic stroke is, is a ruptured brain aneurysm, which we are treating uh, the majority of brain aneurysms from the inside with endovascular techniques using uh, platinum coils and stents plus coils and flow diverting stents. So there's a lot of very interesting endovascular uh, technologies that are being developed and getting out there for patients. In family medicine, occasionally we'll see a child who's been diagnosed with an AV malformation, um, and obviously we're not going to be handling that directly, but if we're involved in the diagnosis and moving on, uh, is there the long-term prognosis for a 10, 12, 15-year-old with that? Are these procedures destined to help them in any possible way? Well, the neuroendovascular procedures are definitely helpful. They're called embolization, so we're able to uh, inject liquid embolic material inside the AVM to seal it off often for cure, but also as a preoperative, uh, either pre-surgical resection or pre-stereotactic radio surgery uh, treatment. So I think the endovascular techniques are, are continuing to improve in that field as well. We only have about a minute left. This time always goes way too fast on this program, but are there some things I didn't ask you or something you want to talk about in the remaining time that you'd like to bring up you think is important? Well, I, I just want to just mention the highlights of the study. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. It's called the Mr. Clean Trial, and what it showed is that in a prospective randomized study and inside the artery techniques were almost twice as uh, beneficial as standard of care for treating patients with uh, large vessel occlusion, which is the most dangerous of strokes. And I think this is a, a, a major, major advancement in our field, and it's one of the most significant studies that's been published in the last 10 or 15 years. I, I know we're chatting as a result of it, and I'm sure there's many people you spoke with. When you get something published in the New England Journal of Medicine, a study like this of this nature, it certainly has to be a shot in the arm as far as uh, getting the medical community aware of things, too. Absolutely, and I think there are several other studies that we've been involved in that are going to be presented at the International Stroke uh, Conference that will uh, have also proven that inside the artery techniques are beneficial. One of the last things I would like to mention is that I think there's some really good sites for patients at the, at, at the SNIS uh, website. is www.sinisonline.org, and patients and physicians can go to that website for more information. Dr. Donald Fry, I want to thank you for joining us. Dr. Fry is the Director of Neurointerventional Surgery at Radiology Imaging Services in Denver, and I really appreciate your time. Well, thank you very much for having me. If you have missed any of this discussion, please visit reachmd.com slash primary care today. You can download the podcast. You can learn more, obviously, on this series. You can also go to that website and pick up more information. Um, And for everybody out there, thanks again for listening.